Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is award-winning author Juliette Marilure. Juliette was born and raised in Dunedin, New Zealand, and is a graduate of the University of Otago. She has had a varied career that included music teaching and performing, and now lives in a historic cottage in Western Australia, where she writes full-time. Juliet's historical fantasy novels and short stories are published internationally and have won numerous awards. She's the author of 24 novels, including the Black and Grimm series and the Seven Water series, as well as two collections of short fiction, Mother Thorn and Other Tales of Courage and Kindness and Prickle Moon. Juliet loves mythology, folklore, and strong complex characters. She is a member of the Druid Order, OBOD, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. When not writing, she's kept busy by a small crew of rescue dogs. In today's conversation, we'll be talking about the creative challenges and unexpected benefits of being an older writer. Welcome to the show, Juliet. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. And I have a feeling that I mangled your name, even though I pr- practiced it, but Nevertheless, <laughs> I do okay. the best. I do the best I can sometimes. Um, talking about your your publication history, your first book was published in 1999 by Pan Macmillan Australia, and to date, you've published 24 novels as well as your two collections of short stories. What inspires you creatively to be able to maintain that output? Sometimes I feel surprised when I hear someone read out what I've done and however many years, and I think, how did I manage to do that? But I think it has to do with loving stories and the power of stories, wanting to tell stories uh, and wanting to communicate with people through through my writing. Um, And... There's lots of inspiration. There's more. There, there are more story ideas there than I have really have time to write. Even managing, you know, one decent sized novel a year, and some of the early ones are are, are really quite large. Um, yeah, I guess all sorts of things inspire me. Often it's something in history that I will read, and it won't be necessarily like writing a historical novel that that puts all of the facts in place, but it's something that inspires a new story to to come out. Um, perhaps about some characters that lived in a particular period of history and and events that happened. Uh, Sometimes it's just something like reading an interesting reference book. I read, I remember before I wrote my Viking novel, Wolfskin and its its sequel, I was reading a book on called The Viking Out of War and it was about weaponry and different kinds of of warriors and what they did. And it was about the berserkers um, who you tend to sort of think of the berserker sort of ripping his shirt off and standing on the front of the longship ready to go in and raid and you know uh, uh, fighting in the name of a god so it's got it's almost like a frenzy um I found from the reading that I did after being so interested in that that book about Vikings and war um that it wasn't really totally like that sure they did um have a god a god of war and they would fight in the name of the god but those guys who were out there fighting when it wasn't the raiding season of spring and autumn they went home and they were helping mum on the farm and you know planting the planting the veggies and probably fathering a child and doing all those things that that you know you you do when you're not out um wielding your weapons so 
I thought instantly, I thought, right, I've got to write a story about a young man who is desperate to become one of these wolfskin warriors, but also is quite a sweet homebody who's quite kind at heart and try to sort of write about the two sides of his character and how that makes his life difficult. So, you know, a whole story will arise from something, perhaps one one thing that I might find in history. And also, I guess, writing about characters who are, even though they're living in a period of history and or somewhere place that has, has the uncanny and magic and myth, myth, mythology, um, the psychology of the characters is based on my real life experience and characters that at heart are, are they're, they're you and me and our families and our friends and so forth. But, um, you know, I, I like to look into what makes them tick, what makes them respond in certain ways to challenge and so forth. And so that side of it feels like real world to me, even though it's often set in what many readers would see as a, as a fantasy version of history. I'm blathering on now, so that's oh. a long, <laughs> a long answer to a short question. Yeah, uh, the main inspiration is is um, to share stories with other people, to write stories and share them with other people and and do something, you know, do something for other people through storytelling, I guess. Mm. I yeah you know I and because I also write short stories and and I know what you mean where almost anything can inspire the story like you said something that you read or um, when I used to travel before COVID I like to get to the airport terminal early sit in the you know the air waiting area and basically eavesdrop on people because you're only mm. you know especially if they're on their cell phone you're only hearing half the conversation and. <laughs> You know, you hear an intriguing sentence and your mind just starts going, oh, this could be the whole story behind that. So it's, yeah, it's it's kind of, I think, especially for writers, we're always aware of, at some level, we're always aware of where could we go with that? You know, just yeah. Yeah. the most normal thing that other people would just ignore. I mean, we can just spin an entire thing out of it. Now, I am curious, why did you choose the historical fantasy genre for your work? Or did it choose you? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think it probably cho chose me. Um, as a child, I loved reading fairy tales and folklore and myths and legends. And so I was an avid reader from very early on. Um, prior to that, I was read to by my parents. And so I always loved that kind of epic story and stories that had a, a sort of a magical overlay. Um, and I guess I, as a child, I probably read that kind of story, um, fantasy stories, but I didn't ever think of fantasy as a genre back then. I just thought, oh, it's a great book. I'll read, or, you know, I'll read another book by this author or whatever. And I did a lot of writing back then. And when I look at those childhood efforts, a lot of them are, are fantasy type stories and of, often it's set in medieval worlds. And then I went off and did a lot of other stuff in my life that didn't involve writing anything fictional, went back to it much later. Um, and I just happened to, you know, when, when I was ready as an older adult to, I guess, make the brain space to write fiction again after a lot of stuff in, in my life that we won't go into, um, I wanted to retell a fairy tale with, but put real people in it rather than the sort of, I guess rather in original fairy tales, often it's just the princess, the prince, the girl, the gardener. They don't have names and they're not necessarily fully fleshed characters. Um, I thought, well, 
in this story of the girl whose brothers get turned into swans. What if that really happened? You know, how would everybody react? How would the different brothers respond to the crisis? How would the girl feel totally alone and so forth? And I think really I was sort of picking up where I was at in my life emotionally after a rather nasty marital breakup and um, putting the pieces together as I wrote that story. Didn't think fantasy. I, I knew it was a fairy tale, but I just thought I'm going to, I want to write this story in this way. And I don't know that I'd been reading very much fantasy or if I was, I wasn't totally thinking about genre. I was just thinking about authors I liked and settings I liked. And I didn't think I'm going to write fantasy at all. I just thought I'm going to write this this book and see if anyone likes it. No, wasn't even writing thinking I will get published. I was just writing because I wanted to get the story out. And that was sort of where I started, although in a sense I started as a writer when I was age six or whatever, and I was, you know, writing little stories that my mum was the only person that probably read them. <laughs> got to start somewhere, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you do. And 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 it's funny, we have a, a similar kind of experience because I started writing very young, too. I think my yes. mother, after she passed, I found that she had saved the very first story I ever wrote. I think I was like in second grade and oh, she wonderful. had it tucked away in a drawer. So, of course, mm -hmm. I saved it. But um, yeah, it's 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 just becomes a natural outgrowth. And I think, too, because you and I are in more or less a similar age bracket, I think there was less other things to occupy our mind, not like kids nowadays with so many TV shows, so many yeah, videos yeah. and everything. So yeah. we had to rely a lot on our own imagination. Yes. You know, so it was, I mean, my, my mother was always say, okay, if your chores are done, go outside and play. And, you know, you had some toys to play with, but you were making up stories to go with the toys. Yeah. And, and, yes. and I think that's lost a lot of times now with kids. They they have everything presented to them and all they have to do is is push the button or move the mouse instead yes. of yes. instead of making it happen. Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, not true of all children, but yes, in many families that's that's the case. And it's rather it's rather sad. I think that exercising the imagination is is wonderful. I think in I think I you know, I'd love to see more parents reading to their children or telling stories to their children. That was a, the oral storytelling was important to me. My mother used to make up stories and mm. can't remember much about them, but they were they were very engrossing because I can remember a, a scene in one of her stories where a character that was all made of cardboard sat slightly too close to the fire and he was obviously going to be setting on set on fire and being most upset and she quickly sort of turned the story onto a slightly different track so that the, the boxer docs survived. Um, and, and, you know, I must've been very small then when she went and she was telling that story, but that was really significant. And, and parents making music was important in my life as well. So people will notice that music's becoming more of sort of a, a thread through the books. And, you know, that, because that was my sort of other career apart from, you know, I've had had the career as a musician and a music teacher before I had the career as a writer. Um, so, you know, I, I owe my parents a lot, I think, for that that upbringing. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it. it yeah, I, I think if they and, you know, I I do appreciate that parents nowadays have a lot more on their plate than they did absolutely. before. But, yeah. you know, you, you're right. It's it's and, and I think, too, just that interaction, just that ability um, to 
to have the child and the parent. I used to read to my grandson all the time. Um, what One of the things too, um, since you've written both novels and short fiction, I'm, I'm curious about this because I'm getting into novel writing, trying not to let the whole publishing, trying to find a publisher thing make me crazy. But yes. when you, because you write in both forms, do you decide ahead of time, this is going to be a novel, this is going to be a short story, or does it just evolve naturally into one or the other? I always know which it's going to be because I would approach writing a story really differently depending on whether it was going to be, you know, this big or or short story. Um, short story, I mean, with both of them, I, I do a lot of planning. I know everybody doesn't do heaps of planning and I admire people who can sit down to write a novel and just sort of write and let it flow and do their, you know, their mad first draft and then go back and fix it all up. I have to have everything sort of structured in my mind before I start. Uh, and that really applies with a short story as well. I'm working on short fiction at the moment and um, I'd need to know, I need to know really at least what the basic shape of the story is going to be. Um, I think the shape needs the shape is more important probably to short fiction in that you've you've got a limited number of words to tell your story. You've got to choose every word carefully and structure every sentence carefully. I mean, I guess you really need to do that with everything, but particularly with a short story and make it just the perfect length to tell to tell that story and to make it effective. Um, I feel like you've got slightly more license with a novel length story. But having said that, I mean, I have my structure and I write the book and I do lots and lots of revision as I go. But the structure, you know, you might invent the architecture or the structure for the story, but it's always, a, you know, the best plans can be tweaked and changed. And you, you often find when you're a certain distance through it that something's not working and you'll, you know, you'll change the way you plan to do it. Um, but yes, I'm I'm always aware of what it's going to be. Um, something like the story about the the wolfskin warrior, which was you know a long time ago. That was obviously going to be a saga-sized story, and I gave him a a story that took him on a historical voyage to the islands of Orkney with you know the imagined first Norse expedition to go there, and um, had to do a lot of research and so forth. So that was a big, big book, bigger than they let me write now. You know, back in those days, you could get away with 220,000 words or whatever it was. Um, short story um, is trying to refine it down, reading short fiction by people who do it very well and noticing how beautifully every sentence is thought out and structured. And, you know, it, it takes me a long time to write a short story, longer than it might, because I guess... The novel is my sort of natural habitat, yeah. But it's mm -hmm. good. It's good for me. Makes me think. Well, I'm, I'm curious because you're obviously then a plotter, and I'm more of a pantser. Do yes. you always know how your stories are going to end, or have you ever, as you're approaching the end of the story, been surprised by what happens? Uh, I certainly almost always know how it's going to end. Um, and I've usually got a couple of endings that need to happen, one of which is the sort of resolution of the whatever it is, the adventure, the, the challenge, the quest or what, whatever that part. And then there's always a sort of a relationship to be wrapped up in one way or another at the end. And that usually comes in the quiet final chapter. Um, not, not in every single book, but mostly. Um, I can't think of any time when I've actually changed 
an ending that I had planned. I mean, I might have tweaked it slightly in terms of what one character does, but pretty much it, the resolution remains as originally planned here. Mm -hmm. Have your characters ever surprised you by something that they did that you weren't expecting? Yes, that's uh, that certainly <laughs> happens. Um, I've certainly had a character who was meant to be a secondary character sort of stand up and say, hey, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be your main character and perhaps not in that book. I'm trying to think which what it was. It was the, the Briday Chronicles, which was my Pictish trilogy. And, um, yeah, there was a character who who became a real historical character who became the king, and it, it's a series about him. But there was this other character who I think originally was sent to assassinate him and who ended up, you know, in being a friend and who became just such an interesting person that he inevitably you know he 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 really became sort of the main character in in the second book at least yeah so it's it's it, it does happen they come alive on the page and they want to take it in a, another direction and fortunately because that was a biggish book i sort of had time to to work both stories in quite satisfactorily yeah i think it's always better when they do that because you know then then we're then we're aware like you said they come alive and we're I think at that point we know it's working because whatever we're doing, we've, we've brought them to life and then they just, and, and it's nice to be surprised. I, I don't know. It would be yeah. harder for me to work on, on a, on a novel that I already know what's going to happen and everything because then it's like, well, no surprises here, you know, but yeah, yeah absolutely. Some some things some things do happen surprisingly in mine. It's not absolutely set in you know set in concrete, but I do like to know where it's heading. It's like sort of it would feel to me if I didn't know where it was going at the end, it would be like building a building starting with the brick in the bottom left hand corner and sort of building like that rather than thinking <laughs> right here's here are the supporting posts and you know. But you know we've all got different ways to work, and I know that some. Authors who are who are pantsers do incredibly well. Just have to do a lot of drafts, and I hate the idea of the sort of complete redraft. So I yeah. guess I just do a draft that gradually, you know, I I I revise three chapters at a time at, at a time as I go, and by the time I get to the end, a lot of it's been reworked multiple times. Yeah, and I suppose it makes a difference too because your books rely so much on on research and everything as opposed to something that's being said in present day where you can kind of wing it you don't have to play it, it's like um uh I, I read a book by elizabeth george where she talked about her writing process and of yeah. course you know her novels are are crime fiction you know detective mystery type things and of course you've got to plot that out otherwise yes. you don't have yeah. all yeah. the necessary components to make it make sense so yes. um, I'm not the clever who, enough who, to do the the crime fiction, and I honestly know I don't have the patience to do all that research. So that kind of puts me in present day type stories. <laughs> um, now I wanted to talk a little bit just about the pandemic. Um, how did that affect you creatively? Were you did you find that you were more productive and inspired, or did it create kind of an, a a block for you? Uh, I think it really created more of a block for me, um, which is sad to say. But yeah, so my last 
my most recent book was uh, not counting Mother Thorne. Like my most recent novel was published in mid twenty twenty one, which meant that it was written mostly the year before that. Um, so that one was done, and I had Mother Thorne sort of pretty much ready to go as well, even though that appeared a bit later. Um, yeah, it's been a strange sort of time, um, time with a lot of upheaval and anxiety, and it's not just the pandemic, but, you know, world politics have been disturbing over the last few years in various ways. And, yes, I have found it very hard to get going on another major project. I've written, I think last year I wrote one short story all year, which was, you know, not, not very much, um, and was happy to see that, you know, coming out sometime soon in an anthology. Um, yes, found it hard to find. I mean, th there was plenty that I wanted to do, but I found it hard to sit down and write a concise synopsis of what I wanted to do to show my agent and say, right, we'll go on with this next, because he normally has a look at what I'm doing and approves it before I go ahead and do the nitty-gritty of the writing. Yeah, so it's hard to say whether that's the pandemic or whether it was something else um, that made that happen, but I've certainly failed to get a, a sort of get him interested. I've, I've, I've written, written up various possible projects, but none of them have seemed to be quite right. So I'm not sure. I think maybe I do just need to wait until, you know, the right inspiration comes along um I've, yeah I've got a lot that I wanted to do mm -hmm. I did lots of reading wrote, wrote read plenty of fabulous books by other people so <laughs> I guess that's good it's recreational yeah yes and of course the authors always like it when somebody reads their work but it yeah it, it was I know for me it wasn't so much the isolation during the pandemic because I work out of my home and I live alone anyways so it wasn't that it was the underlying fear, like you said, not mm. only of COVID, but of what else was happening. And it's, yes. it's almost, yes. there were so many times where I couldn't block it out. You know, you were just yes. being inundated with everything. And, yes. you know, that does not do us well as writers when we've got too much stuff coming in and we're not allowed to clear a a space in our head to do the writing itself, to do the imagining itself. So um, now the, the way I came across you was, was I read that post that you had on Writer Unboxed, um, where you talk about the questions you asked yourself at age 73 <clears throat> when you were considering writing another trilogy. Basically, were you too old to do it? And was it time to put yourself out to pasture? Did you, and, and I'm, I'm interested in your answer because I'm 68. So I tend to start thinking, am I too old to try something different? Should I just stick with the short stories? So did you resolve that question or is that still a work in it's progress? It's still a work in progress. It's interesting, isn't it? See, I'm 74, so I've got a few years, you know, on you. And, um, yeah, I did think about that. I wondered about it. Um, I think partly because of the fact that I'd been trying to, you know, sort of I, I was very keen to write a trilogy that would have a the same protagonist but she would be young and then middle-aged and then old in the three volumes and I think that was the thing that my agent didn't like was that we weren't going to follow her at the same age sort of going or going you know I guess fast moving because that would be a trilogy that would cover almost someone's entire life and I can sort of understand why 
that might not appeal as a, you know, as a commercially viable idea. I'm sure there's some way of doing it. There's probably a way of doing it as a single book, I think. But, um, you know, so it's in the back of my mind. Um, it was based around Baba Yaga and uh, Slavic folklore. And I have noticed that since I had that idea sitting sort of in the to-do basket, a number of books about Baba Yaga characters have come out, some of them extremely good, and I've, uh, other people have done that one, <laughs> so maybe, maybe not. Um, but she's a fascinating character, and I, I liked the idea of Baba Yaga as a young woman and what might have built her into the character that she became, the, the, the wise woman who was both to be feared and respected and and had something, you know, had something to offer. Um so yeah, sorry, I'm now I've now lost what I was talking about. I it, oh ab about yeah, whether whether you think you're too old. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting one. At one stage, and I think because of the pandemic, I was occasionally forgetting things and feeling you know. And every time I forget, you know, leave my keys behind or whatever, do something stupid. Once you reach the age of seventy something, you tend to well, I tended to question myself and say gosh you know you're becoming a dotty old woman and all that stuff you know and then remind myself of all the other stuff that I was doing that made perfect sense you know keeping physically fit looking after my dogs taking on more rescue dogs um handling the computer side and the, the accounts and all that stuff and so really I'm still mentally competent and um my mother and grandmother retained all their marbles right through into their 90s and so there's no reason to assume that I would be you know losing it now so it's probably just more as much to do with the state of the world and all that anxiety that you were mentioning um as it is with getting physically older having said that I'm talking to you waving this arm which has actually been in a in a plaster cast for the last six weeks because when I came back from my trip to Ireland I had an episode of falling over the dog in the, in the backyard when the dog crept up behind me and didn't tell me he was there. And in order to avoid squashing him, I put my hand down and broke my wrist. So, you know, that's one of those old person injuries, tripped over the dog and broke something that I'm having to, you know, sort of make sure I take out of the equation of the am I too old to, to write another book. So, yeah, the plaster cast is off as of this morning and now I'm doing all the exercises to regain the regain the strength yes yeah, so I was pleased that I'd written that blog post for writer unboxed it got a you know that had more got a lot more interest than any other post I've written for them over the what 10 years or something that I've been a member of that that blog um yeah so I I think I'll reread my own post to give me faith in older women being creative and continuing to be productive I do I do believe that we should keep doing it, can keep doing it, and that I think that there's something, even something in the fairy tales about that, you know, even though <clears throat> a lot of fairy tales have been changed a lot since they were perhaps first in the oral tradition and older women tend to be often, you know, they're wicked witches or whatever. Well, witches are fine, not necessarily wicked witches. But um, I think that older people and older women in particular have a lot of wisdom and a lot of our wonderful ideas to share. Um, we've been through all sorts of experiences we've um, observed. We maybe haven't had the opportunity to share our wisdom so much during the period when perhaps we were very much busy with being the homemaker and raising the children and so forth. And I think 
we reach a time when we're, we're ready to share it and we should do so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times what does me in is when I, when I read about these 25 year old authors who have all these books out yeah, and I'm thinking, good Lord, you know, at that age, I was probably toilet training one of the kids, you know, but it, it's just yeah. the idea that, oh, I should, you know, we do that should thing. I should have done more. I should, but then, like you said, you have to look at everything and all the life experiences we have maybe now are the things that are going to let us bring that in. Because I would think it's a lot easier in some respects to write fully formed characters that are of an older age when you've already either you're either at that age or you're older rather than if you're 19 years old and you're just trying to imagine what it would be like we we know yes. what it's like you know so it's we we do bring that wisdom that perspective that experience it's just you know the odds are very great that i am not going to be like you and have 24 novels to my credit because I'm 68 years old, you know, I mean, unless I write multiple ones in one year, but there's no, you know, maybe numbers aren't that important. Maybe it's quality versus quantity. I definitely think it's quality versus quantity. And um, yeah, I think that, I mean, I do know some writers who seem to turn out more than one book a year, maybe two or three. Um, it's, a little bit easier now, I guess, that people can put their own work up online and gain a, a following. Um, maybe it's not. I shouldn't say it's easier. It's it's always hard to write a book. I salute these people that, that you know, that mm -hmm. do, do the multiple books. I've never been able to do that. I work so slowly because I do so much revision. But, I, you know, I, I guess I, having written as a, a, a child and as a teenager, perhaps I could have done creative writing at university if they've had if they'd had it my university back then instead of doing music as a major perhaps I could have tried to write a novel when I was in my 20s because I knew how to write um and sometimes I've had that sort of thought gosh I wasted you know 25 years or whatever doing all the other stuff working in a, a, a different day job raising my children that's always worthwhile of course um and then I think, no, I, I, I was so much more mature when I started to write novels than I would have been. And as you said, you know, the life experience, including including the negative life experience, because that teaches you about being courageous and overcoming challenge, um, meeting meeting challenges. Um, it teaches you, I totally agree with you about characters. You meet all sorts of people, you know, while you're, even meeting other parents meeting people you you're working with and so forth and just just the people you meet in the street and as a writer you're an observer all the time like sitting in the airport looking at the people wandering past and so forth and I'm sure that I wrote characters much better after having that you know even though I wasn't writing during the 25 year span or whatever when I went back to it I was able to bring a lot more maturity to what I was doing I'm, I'm sure that applies with I mean it probably applies with, with writers male and female but the fact is that most of us women have been have, we've been through a period of raising children and it's hard to find the creative energy to write books at the same time as those you know those child rearing years right. so exactly you know, later. Mm. 
And as we've been teenagers and 20-year-olds and young marrieds and young mothers, we can write those characters as well as the, the wise women. Mm -hmm. Now, not that I think we should label ourselves, but do you consider yourself an older writer or do you just consider yourself a writer? I think I probably consider myself an older woman and I consider myself as a writer. That's oh. sort of, you know, Okay. That's, that's good. That's, yeah. I have to sort of think around it, but yeah. Um, certainly one, well, you know, once, once one's in one's seventies and I think inevitably one is considered to be older, you know, but I don't know. I'm sure a lot of the people who live around me think I'm just the crazy dog lady and, you know, this white-haired woman with the two little white-haired dogs that walks around the streets twice every day. But, um, yeah, some people around here know that I'm a writer. But, yeah, I, I, I and I don't think that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that as an older writer I write differently from how I'd write if I were 50 or 40 or I'm probably differently from the way I'd write if I was 30, I think. But, um, yeah, it doesn't necessarily make it a particular kind of writing that I do, being there, mm -hmm. which I mm. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you, you had said that, you know, it might be also for men, but I think with women, you know, biologically, physically, so much of our, our fruitfulness, for want of a better word, is tied to where we are in our age. You know, when we start having periods, we can be fruitful and multiply, as, as the Bible says. Yeah. And then when we go through menopause, I mean, just look at the advertising. If you are approaching menopause or through menopause and on the other side of it, it's like, okay, your life is over. All you have ahead of you is just all these lousy physical things and you're sort of relegated to being a second-class citizen almost. Um, you know, my, my concern is that, and, and for myself as well, that we take that and we start applying it to our ability to be creative that, okay, I'm now, you know, from a, using the menopause metaphor, I've, I've gone through menopause and now my creativity, my ability to produce a new fictional baby, oh, that's passed. I mean, how, did you, did you have to overcome that at all? And, and in general, what advice do you have, since you're obviously still productive and making yes. babies yeah. and books, what, what should we do to not let that affect us? It's a that's a really interesting question, um, particularly as menopause tends to happen at a different. Yeah, you know, it ha happens to women at a, a lot of different ages. You know, at a sort of you know early late. I guess, but I guess this, that feeling might be the same that you were sort of losing a creative fruitfulness or whatever. Um, I can't remember. I, I can remember feeling a bit weird. I mean, I I was one of these women who were lucky to go through menopause with very few of the negative sort of physical. Um, problems that that many women have um I don't you know I don't know that I've ever really thought of it like that myself because it was during those years I guess you know I started late I had that you know writing as a, a young person and then a long period of not writing at all and by the time I started writing seriously again I was in my mid-40s so I would have been getting on towards the sort of menopausal age um, and that was when I started, really, started again um, creative writing. So for me, it was a different pattern. You know, my career as a writer started, first book published when I was 50, 
um, and I wasn't actually in menopause yet then, but I was at that sort of age. So, you know, it didn't it didn't fit the pattern. As for um, what we can do about it, I mean, clearly to me, it doesn't going through menopause doesn't equate to losing your your creativity. I would say if women can view it as a new kind of freedom, you don't have to do all that stuff with you know dealing with your period anymore and the the you know. The, the annoying practicalities of, of having to deal with it quite apart from maybe not feeling very well when you have your period, um, treat it as stepping into a a new wisdom and a new freedom. And it's time that you, you know, you have time when you can, I don't know, it's not doing something for yourself, but it, in a sense it is, it's, you know, um, take time for whatever it is that you love to do. If you love to write, then you'll write. If you've got something else that you love to do with it, some sort of craft or whatever, you do that. Um, I would think that probably the thing that might make women feel old and perhaps uncreative might be when you approach the time when people expect you to reti retire from a day job. I mean, you may have a day job and you may not, or your day job might be writing. And that will be a time when you, you might feel slightly pressured by society to be stepping back and thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll just only be a grandmother or I'll just potter around and whatever, you know. Whereas I think it's I think it's it provides creative opportunities that people should seize if they wish to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 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 with you there because also by the time you're going through menopause, you know, your your kids are hopefully grown, maybe already out of the house and everything. Yeah. And you do have that that, um, like you said, new opportunities, new doors opening, you know, just because this door closed doesn't mean new ones can't open. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm like you, my first book came out in when I was 50. And it was, it was like, oh, I, I hadn't even thought about it, you know, it's a possibility. Yes, yes, and it, and sure. it's, you know, it just opens up ideas that you can do something so um yeah and and it's funny because the novels that i'm working on do feature women protagonists who are approaching 50 over 50 having to deal with the changes in their life you know not just necessarily menopause changes but you know who else can they be uh, this, this is yeah. Yeah. this is what yeah. i want to look because because that's what i went through you know they they say to some extent, you should write what you know. That's all I know is how do I deal with this particular change? Because like you, you know, you go through, I've gone through a lot of changes in my life. So it's like now I'm looking back going, okay, you know, how did I deal with that? Now let me get, get a character, throw that in the mix with a character, but let mm. that character have th their own reaction to it, you know, because I, yeah. we certainly don't want a, every character to be us. I mean, that, that doesn't oh, work either. Sure. Um, now, since you have been an author for so many years, and since we know, at least now, yes, we do have the potential for self-publishing, but some people still choose to go the traditional route, try to find a publisher, try to find an agent. What advice do you have? Because I like to ask, always ask authors this, what advice do you have? Because it can be so, oh, so frustrating trying to get an agent, trying to find a publisher, feeling like it's never going to happen. And then even if your book comes out and trying to market it, get your readers, how have you 
kept your, um, your focus on your writing and feeling positive about it when you know sometimes it is such an uphill battle? Yeah, that's a, a very significant question. It's an important one. I guess I was lucky with the, I mean, I didn't have an agent for my first few books. I just um, sent my manuscript direct to a publisher um, and was lucky enough to to score a, a three-book contract. Um, and I knew nothing about the publishing, publishing as a business. Now, that was back then before it became relatively easy to pay well you know people weren't self-publishing much back then and you didn't have the digital you know the ease of sort of digital publishing so it was a diff different age even though it was only you know 20 something years ago um and when I reached the decision that my career was getting to be big enough so that I really needed an agent to handle things I was lucky enough to have some contacts within um through my Australian publisher really um with people who could recommend American agents to me and um someone who very kindly said try this one this one or this one but also contacted one of them and said hey look out for this person who's about to send you a manuscript scored um behind the screen the scenes I, I'm assuming that assuming that's what he did he made contact anyway and so this agent actually contacted me and said, you know, we're interested. And I was I was very fortunate. So that is the person that I eventually went with because it was a, a personal approach. So yeah, very, very lucky. And it's not probably not quite like that now. So, you know, I, I even though I, I'm currently in disagreement about certain things with him, he's been fabulous, fabulous agent. Um look, I think the important thing, and I think you've already said it, is for writers who are starting out and who are trying to do that agent search and so forth um, to keep the focus on writing the best book they possibly can to make sure it's polished and just finished and complete entirely to their satisfaction to make sure that other people have written have read their manuscript and given them feedback other people who not not you know your mum and your friends but people who can give you professional feedback and bear in mind that you can't do what everybody tells you to do to fix up the manuscript. But if you if you show it to six people and five of them all say the same thing, then you can assume that that might be something that will be worth attending to. But, you know, you don't just sort of dash off the manuscript and send it off thinking that it's the best thing since sliced bread. Work and work and work and polish because the main thing is writing the best book you possibly can. Also, do your research into agents how to approach them make sure you comply exactly with the what they've got on their website about what they're accepting and how what they want you to send initially you know don't go sending the whole manuscript if they only want a query letter and a, a sample um yeah make sure you, you find a publisher who or find an agent who deals with your kind of genre and if you're approaching publishers often publishers now will have an open pitch day once a month or once every three months or whatever when you can send send something in and they'll look at it. So, you know, that's the first step. So check out those those times when they will accept um, unsolicited manuscripts. Um, yeah, and you just got to be as professional and as organised about it as you can. And don't, I, I would say, honestly, to young writers or to, to, to new writers, 
try not to get too strung up on the actually getting published part of it. Concentrate first on what you're writing, you know, polishing. Enjoy writing it. Think I'm, you know, I'm writing a story. It's it's taking shape. The characters coming real. Um, fixing it up, and you can see that it's getting better. And people are telling you it's getting better. That's the important thing. And then you worry about right, where's it going next? I wrote my first book, which is still probably my most successful, not intending to submit it for publication, just writing it, and. Um, you know, I was very lucky to have success with that. And I sometimes wonder whether that's been so successful because I wasn't thinking I'm going to write, and I'm going to become a writer. I was just thinking I'm going to write this. I love this story. I'm going to write this story and create these characters. So that's a bit woolly, but um, that's the best advice I can offer, I think. And I think it's good advice because, you know, we have the the writing part but then we have to have the the business side of it. We have to understand how the business operates and make sure we, like you said, comply with with what they want to see and do the research. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, I mean, it, it's wonderful to have the self-publishing option out there. I know I chose that for my two books on writing, but at the same time, I think people say, oh, good, I'm going to dash off this 80,000 word novel in five yes. days and, and I'm going to self-publish it. And, and it's like, um, that's just the first draft. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who can do the first run through of a novel and never have to change anything. No, so, I think that would be most unlikely here. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think we do, you know, it's patience, everything. It takes patience. And like you said, make it as good as you possibly can. Um, you had mentioned earlier about this writing retreat in, in Ireland. And I know um, you had told me before that it was uh, mostly all women, but there was quite an age age range from 20s to 70s. What were yes. some of the insights you gained from that? Because I I would have loved to have been there. It was a lot of fun. That's actually the third, the third retreat I've been to in at Crum Castle in Ireland, which um yeah, I really enjoyed, and it was it was a little different from the two previous ones in that we had a a big not only that very wide age range. I think it was the youngest was eighteen. That was the young man who was um, a writer, but also was making a film of of the retreat, which was interesting. And yes, and a woman who both I and one other woman were sort of in in our seventies. Um, yeah, a lot of. Um, the previous ones I've been to, there have been a lot of writers of fiction, including several writers of fantasy, historical fantasy or fantasy or science fiction. This time around, there were a lot of business-focused writers there, um, sort of motivational books. Um, uh, and a couple of poets, which was great. Um, and also uh, one psychotherapist and uh, another guy who was writing a book that was related to... Um, depression and techniques and so forth for dealing with that so you know quite a quite a range um and that made a difference to the general vibe of the group I was concerned not concerned exactly but I was wondering how it would be with that particular group at the start because almost none of them were doing anything that was much like what I was doing <laughs> which didn't matter at all but you know I thought I wonder if this group will gel and there are a couple of people who shall be nameless who I thought 
initially, right, I'm not going to get on with that person. I can tell, you know, it's we're going to sort of rub each other up the wrong way. Um, and I think other people were feeling a little bit the same. Some some other people, not all of them. Some people were very shy to start with, particularly some of the younger ones, which I could totally understand. And um, really, to me, to me <clears throat> sorry, just going to have a drink of water. Yeah, the sort of magical part of it, well, one of the magical parts of it was the way that group kind of grew, people grew to understand one another. Um, people got to talk to the most least, the, the least likely, you know, the most unlike themselves uh, characters. And in over time, people started to understand each other and to appreciate what the other person was putting in that was completely different. Like, for example, me with my getting up and talking about the magic of the landscape and how when you're walking through that it was very, it's in very beautiful surrounds, the castle, it has um, a large estate that's managed by the National Trust and a lot of it's been left to things like wildflower meadows and there's a herd of deer and a beautiful lake with swans and it's a just a most very lovely landscape. Um, and I spent a lot of time just walking alone through the landscape because that's the what I pick up to put into the books, I suppose. So I talked about that when I got my little time to sort of talk and introduce and so forth and about various experiences I had when out alone and felt the magic in, in the landscape. And the person that I connected with was one of the people that I thought was going to be in a polar opposite, someone who seemed to be initially sort of stirring other people to, you know, to get them to retaliate and spark some sort of, you know, confrontation and so forth, conversation. And um, I grew to understand what that person had to offer. They grew to understand what I had to offer and we had a really good good conversations and ended up with as friends at the end. And I saw this happening with various other people as well, that people opened up, people who had been a bit buttoned up, spoke out when we were having our conversations in the, you know, sitting in the drawing room talking about what we were learning and so forth. And um, some of the much older people, not me, but a few others were the people who were the life of the party when we went down to the pub to, you know, have a Guinness and listen to some Irish music. A lot of dancing was done. And I thought, well, oh, there's one particular person in particular who, you know, I thought, gee, you know, I wish I could party the way that person does it, you know. She was similar age to me. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of a lot of stuff was happening. We had someone there who um, detected um, an unseen presence who was sharing the bedroom with her, someone who seemed like a ghost of someone who'd been there long before and who needed companionship and needed a bit of sort of nurturing. And so there were sort of the conversations with the ghost and um, it's the sort of place where you would expect that there might be some sort of spirits. It's a beautiful old, beautiful old building here. Um, what else? And also one thing I thought, I mean, I, I tend to sort of think about characters when I meet a whole lot of people that I don't know. And the people that are the absolute, I mean, there's, there's the Earl of Erne, who is the, you know, the master of the house and his wife, the Countess of Erne. And they're lovely people, not not at all sort of, what you might imagine British aristocrats to be like, just very warm and friendly and lovely. But also there's um, 
the staff, uh, there's the butler, the cook and the housekeeper who are all great characters and who've been there through the different visits that I've done in different years who are just the most amazing, amazing characters, the amazing people full of personality and um, just lovely to meet and lovely to be with. And I keep thinking, you know, it's not necessarily the, the aristocratic owners of the house, it's the a lot of the warmth at the heart of the house is these people who have been working there for years and years and years and have established sort of a great friendship with everybody and they recognise people who come back to the house and so forth. So, you know, that they were a highlight of the visit as well. Um, yeah, so that's... It, it sounds like it was just a terrific experience and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, it's been so long, well, before COVID, that was the last writing conference I had gone to where I had any interaction with anybody. And, you know, I'm hoping not this year, but maybe next year, get back to that because there is just, you know, you learn so much from people, especially if, if you go in and don't have, um, already have your barriers up. Like, like you said, you know, sometimes the people that you think are the least likely that you're going to mesh with turn out to be the ones that it really works out great. So it's, yes. it's you know, it just, it, it's just so nice to hang out with other writers and talk shop, you know, that's. Fabulous. Yeah. Yes. I, I was going, I was going to say before we, the, you know, sort of the, the people who perhaps didn't quite fit in or whatever, who one thought mightn't fit in. We had a gala dinner on the last full night there, which was in a beautiful old, you know, lovely old, dining hall in the in the castle long table with piper piping us into dinner and so forth and there wasn't quite room enough for everybody at the long table and so there was a little table at the side which would have been where you might have put the children you know sort of little four-seater table and the four people who were sitting at sitting at that table were me the person who I'd thought that I wasn't going to gel with who I'd by then become friends with and the very young man and a very young woman who was also there who was not there for the entire you know and so it was a an odd combination whether that just happened or whether someone thought oh let's put these four people together and that was the best one of the best sort of interactions of the whole thing was being the sort of you know the naughty table or the children's table or whatever with um and i thought you know it, it, it's really interesting how a group can gel like that and have a wonderful time and be happy and share all sorts of ideas and you think it would be the least likely thing well again it's like the magic of the magic of you know of Ireland and the place I suppose as well as the people but that was a real highlight for me. Yeah it sounds like it was a, a wonderful experience. I, I always like to close um, each podcast interview by asking the same question and that is how do you define success as a writer? What is your personal definition of, of success? I write myself some spidery notes about this, which I can't read, but that doesn't matter. Look, it's, it's really hard to say because it's several different things, I think. I mean, you can say having had X number of books published in the mainstream is success, or you could say that learning a living as a, as a full-time writer is success that's one that is that has actually been important to me and I I'm saying it even though it sounds non-inspirational to say how nice to be able to earn your living as a writer but I never thought that would happen and I am very happy that that happened because even though I had a good career as a as doing other things first um 
I feel incredibly lucky to be able to to do that to to earn a living doing you know what I love most. Um, but really, I think the most important thing is um, knowing that you've reached readers and spoken to readers in some way. So for me, even as a writer of fantasy fiction, which seems sort of way out there, um, as I said, I write about real people and real human experiences and the best thing for me and therefore probably the marker of success is hearing back from readers with things like, um, thank you for your, the story you wrote, helped me to pull myself out of a very dark place in my life, you know, brought me back to myself. Or I took your book with me when I was on holiday and it sort of kept me company every night and I read a little every night and, you know. Um, so some of my some of the paper copies of my books have been around Europe in people's backpacks and so forth, you know. Um, writing a series, the, the Blackthorn and Grimm series, while it's based on mythology and fairy tale and history, um, is basically about two people helping each other out of post-traumatic stress disorder and um, the aftermath of that. And it's, but it's in their novels. And um, the most fabulous feedback on that was someone who was running a therapy group for PTSD victims, if you like, or, you know, people who had, had been afflicted by PTSD to help them and having the person that was co coordinating that group say they'd read that series and had found it wonderfully helpful and I thought my gosh you know that's the power of storytelling to to teach and to heal which is one of the druid philosophies and so I guess that kind of feedback knowing that I've connected with with readers in such a meaningful way that's actually more important than the other things that I've mentioned yeah mm. and, and I think in the end that's really why we write you know we write <clears throat> excuse me we write for ourselves but then we also write to, to make that connection with other people. And, and even if it's only with one other person who takes the time to, to let us know the, you know the impact that it had, I mean, it's like, okay, good. I, I did good. This worked, you yeah. know, it's, it's very, because you could sell a lot of books, but then maybe they just, you know, they sell, but they don't make a connection. And, and, Yes. You know, for us, I think it's making the connection that that really matters to us. Well, yes, I, I've loved having you on the show. You have been you have been a real encouragement to me, you know, all the way. It's, it's funny because I've been thinking a lot about mentors and people who come into your life in different ways. And you, you've now you're now on my mentor list because I look at you and I'm thinking, <clears throat> OK, she's still going strong. There's no reason, you know, age is not a barrier. So you have absolutely encouraged me, given me a, a lot of a lot of hope for my my next uh, foray in as a writer. And I wish you continued success with with your projects. I can't wait to read what's coming out next. Excellent. Oh, it's been really lovely to chat to you and I'm glad that I've been, I've managed to be positive. That's really, that's really good. I think we can all help each other through the hard times, you know, and um, it's a great opportunity to, to, to reach out and talk to people and I hope we both go on writing until we're, you know, 95 at least. Yeah, at, at least, at least. Well, thanks again for being part of the show and thanks to everyone who joined us here at Living the Writing Life.